we're going to look at the ordinance of baptism and where it came from. How did this come to be? Because it seems like it shows up and no one really questions it. But we don't really have anything that seems to have been going on in the Old Testament like it. So John chapter 1 verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. So we see that this is the man sent from God. Now, of course, this is the gospel of John. This is not John the Baptist gospel. This is John the disciple. But there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So he was a man sent from God. So God sent him. So the things he was doing were the things that God told him to do. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. Now, how do you become a witness? You see something. You bear witness of something that you have seen. So, how is John going to be a witness of the Christ? When he has started his ministry six months before the Christ even came on the scene. How are you a witness? <laughs> no one else ever asked that question. Miss Gladys's face on there. We didn't ask that question. If he's called a witness. Not just one who's bringing a testimony, but he's called a witness. He is to bear witness of, of the Christ. So somehow something needs to go on that he becomes a witness He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So even though John came to bear witness, and we'll get more into what that is in a little bit, but he came to bear witness, and for six months was a testimony of the Christ, even though all that came about and eventually he does walk in that app, that uh, place of a witness of the Christ still those that were his own did not receive Jesus his own did not receive receive him but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name now this verse of scripture helps us with the the doctrine that a lot of people are having a hard time with, if Christ died for all, how come all aren't saved? And this verse right there will tell you. They didn't receive Him. If you don't receive Him, then He doesn't give you the right to become the child of God. Not everyone apparently has that right. Of course, we have this uh, debate about rights all the time now. Well, I have a right to do this and I have a right to do that. And we're real, real con confused between rights and privileges. Eh, we're not going to get on that discussion, but but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we have to get beyond this part of being born of blood, just being born of flesh and blood. We have to get beyond that because, of course, everybody was, everyone on the earth was born of blood. But we want to be born of God. Let's uh, see if we've, we got all this, rest of that finished. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, we all know these scriptures real, real well. 
the Word, of course, became flesh, as, as in Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. He existed before me, is what He's saying, because He is the Christ. But John bore witness of Him. Now, there's that witness, <coughs> witness part again. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was born, for He was before me. Verse 16, And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So through Moses came the law. But through Jesus Christ, we have something more than the law. We have the truth and we have grace. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, He has declared, declared Him. Now this is the testimony of John. This is the testimony of John. Whom the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? Now, which is interesting, at least to me, is that they made a distinction between the prophet and Elijah. It almost seems like they expected a prophet other than Elijah to come before him, but that Elijah was also going to come before him. Did they have an inkling that there might be two aspects of the Messiah's ministry or two different times? I don't know. Can't really answer that one. But it's just interesting that they made a distinction between Elijah and the word puts it there, the prophet. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I take from that that they were expecting some type of a ceremony to come with the Messiah. Something to come along, such as baptism. Maybe not specifically baptism, but it seems like from this verse that they were expecting something to come but the one that would introduce it or one that would bring it in would either be the prophet, Elijah, or the Christ. Don't you see that in that, in that verse? Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in... Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So there was a place where John was baptizing, and this was all transpired out there. So who are you? They're wanting to know, all right, who are you? Why are you? You're out here. You're bringing in this baptism. No one else is baptizing. John is the first guy to come along and do it. And the Pharisees and these guys even, even say, hey, we'll all get involved with this. Let's go. And they came on down to be baptized, and he, of course, said to them, you know, who warned you? <laughs> So they were willing to part. They didn't see this as wrong. They didn't see this as against the gospel. So somehow there is something in their history that opens the door for them to receive this and not question it. Why are you doing this? Why are you baptizing this way? Why are you immersing in water? No one ever seems to ask him that. They ask who he is, not why he's doing what he's doing. 
So they seem to be okay with this, with the, as you would put it, maybe ceremony, the uh, institution of baptism. Now, if um, Matthew 21, verse 23, Now when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Of course, they wanted to entrap Jesus by getting him to say his authority was from God and then they could thereby challenge that and say he's not from God and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? So he's speaking about the ordinance of baptism. John brought the ordinance of baptism along. Is it from, from God or from men? Now, they never questioned the ordinance. And they didn't answer the question. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? Because he testified of, of Jesus. But if we say from men, we fear the multitude. For all kind of John is a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So no one seems to question the ordinance of baptism. No one seems to question the ceremony. Everybody seems to be quite okay with this. So where does this come from? Now, if we go over to Leviticus chapter 14, verse 49, this is one thing you can, we can find that's kind of close to it. This is what would happen that if a house had to be cleansed. You can go back and read the whole chapter if you want to see what would have happened to the house. Because it's really a strange thing, but I'm not going to get into all that. If um, There's a procedure that you go through if a house had a problem to um, eradicate the problem. And if it worked, then you would go through this procedure to clean the house, and if not, uh, basically you tear the house down. So this is for those houses that the procedure worked and the, uh, the malady of the house didn't continue to spread. And he shall take to cleanse the house two birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. Then he shall kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And he shall take the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet, and the living bird, and dip it in the blood of the slain bird, and in the running water, and sprinkle the house seven times. And he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the, of the bird in the running water, and the living bird with the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet. Then he shall let the living bird loose outside the city in the open field, and make atonement for the house, and it shall be clean. Now in this, this is a type of, of, of course, Jesus he would be coming and he would be the bird that would be slain and we are the bird that is released. So we go free and Jesus Christ died because of his blood. So we are washed in the blood and the, and the water is brought in. So here you have water and you have blood brought in, which of course in the New Testament, we are washed first by the blood and then by water and baptism. So there's where we see a little bit of that. But that doesn't quite, we can't quite get baptism out of that, can we? Now, the word baptism in the Greek is, is uh, used of some other things, not just putting people in water for the ordinance of baptism. And, of course, you know the history. I think we talked about this before. The history of the word baptism. There is no special Greek word that means baptism. It is the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. That's all the word means. So you basically have uh, John the Immerser. I heard one person put it this way, John the Dipper. <laughs> but this word baptism is used of a boat sinking in the water. 
So as you use this word for it, the water would be uh, completely saturate the boat. The boat would become immersed or baptized in the water so that the water was on the outside and on the inside of the boat. It was also used to talk about a dyed garment. If you took a garment, you would dip or you would submerge the garment in the dye. The dye would saturate the, the garment so that the garment would come out with the color of the dye. Revelation 19 and verse 13 talks about being dipped in blood. That's the word baptism. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. So the robe was dipped in blood or basically he was baptized in blood. Took that, that robe and <laughs> we submerged it in the, in the water and it came out with, the, with that blood on it. So this is what the word means. Now in Exodus chapter 29 and, and 30, you know, I wrote this in there for you. You can go back and read this on your own. We're not going to read through it here right now. What I did was summarize all this. This is what you would do to a priest to put them into service. If you're going to put a priest into service, this is what you would do. You would go through this procedure. So the first thing that Exodus 29 talks about is we're, we're going to bring into this event is unleavened bread. That's the first thing we're going to bring in. We're also going to bring in a bull and I think two goats or two lambs, or I think it was, they would, they would come on in. And so we're bringing the animals in. And then what would they would do is they take Aaron or the high priest or whoever the high priest was, and they would take them at the door of the tabernacle and they would wash them. Head to toe, this is a complete immersion, complete washing of the priest. They would be washed. It was a ceremonial washing. It was not a, a uh, well, we need to do this every time. This is what you do to put a priest into service. It took seven days to complete this. The seven-day process. So the, there was a washing at the door of the tabernacle. There were garments that were prepared for the priest. This is back in Exodus 28. So we've already talked about the garments. We've already made them ready. We have them ready. So after the washing, the ceremonial garments of the priest are put upon them. Then there was an anointing oil that was added. From there, we had the killing of the animals so that the sacrifice would go on. Then we take the blood and we sprinkle that on them, on their clothes. Uh, and there would be pouring out of blood as well. So we had the sprinkling of blood and the pouring out of blood. And then there was a bronze lever. I'm sorry, bronze laver, in which in, in that this, what they would do is that when they would come to the tabernacle or the altar to, to do the sacrifices, they would wash in the bronze laver. They would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. They would not completely immerse themselves. They would wash their hands and they would wash their feet because when they were put into, into place as a priest, they were ceremonially ceremonially washed by immersion. They were completely washed, head to toe. So let's take this over in the New Testament. We're going to start here at the, at the bottom. We take this over into the New Testament. The, the bronze lever. Is there, is there anything that is similar to the washing of the feet and hands in the New Testament? That would be the confession of sin. Confession of sin, because he who is clean, Jesus says, need only wash his feet and his hands. And we did that by coming to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who washed our hands and our feet. Jesus was the one who did that. So there was, there was carryover from there. How about the sprinkling and pouring of blood, of the animal's blood? No, that is gone, because the blood of Jesus Christ is shed one time 
And it does not ever need to be shed again. It is done. So the sprinkling and pouring of blood animals, you just take that one, cross that one right out. That's gone. How about the killing of animals? Gone. Jesus Christ died once. Once for sin. So that is gone. How about anointing oil? Absolutely. We have anointing oil in the New Testament, don't we? We anoint the sick. That's one of the things we'll do. The Bible even tells us, bring, have sick among you, bring them out. Anoint them. So we have anointing there. Hem up garments of the priests. Uh, think about it. Think about it. what kind of garments are you supposed to be putting on? Garments of praise, garments of righteousness. If you're going to come into the wedding feast, what are you supposed to have on? A wedding garment. So are there garments in the New Testament? Yes, yes there are. And you better have them because if you don't, you get kicked out. <laughs> it's not the priest garment anymore. It's the garments of praise. It's the garments of, of, uh, of the feast. It's the garments of righteousness. Not our own garments of righteousness, but His. So we have that carrying over. How about the washing at the door of the tabernacle? Absolutely, it's called baptism. But here's the difference. Here's the thing that was different. In the Old Testament, the only ones who were baptized were priests. In the New Testament, everyone is baptized. Why? Because everyone is priests and kings. And so when they bring in the baptism in the New Testament, it is basically bringing in the ceremonial washing of the priest and making it available to all. That all became washed as priests. But you only get washed how many times? One time. And from there on out, you're clean. And when you come to the altar, all you need to do is feet and hands. Feet and hands. Remember Peter's things? Well, not my hands and feet. Wash the whole thing. And what did Jesus say? Uh-uh. No, sir. Not going to do it. He was clean. He only washed his feet and his hands. How about unleavened bread? Called communion. So if we look at the things that were done for the priest, every single thing carries over to the New Testament except for the blood of the animals. And that is wiped out because of the blood of the Lamb. But everything else is carried over. So if we look at the ceremony in Exodus 29 and 30 of the priest, we see where the ordinance of baptism came from and why they were so okay with it. Because you see, we just read about this. We didn't see it all the time. We just read it about it. But these folks that were around with Jesus' day, they constantly saw this ceremony taking place of the priest being baptized. In fact, if you look at some of the synagogues, they actually had a baptismal, what we would call a baptismal. And they used that for anyone who was unclean of many different things as a way to become ceremonially clean. So they were used to people being taken into a body of water and baptized, immersed in the water and being brought back out. So when they saw John doing it, they came out to see why are we doing it. But they didn't question what he was doing because they were used to it. We had seen this going on with the priests. We had seen this going on with people who were unclean for the different things. And this is part of the ceremony of bringing them clean again. Baptism is the outward indication. Before people, 
that we forsake the works of the previous life and begin the works of the kingdom of God. It is a ceremonial death and resurrection that we died to the old things, the old works that we did, and are alive to the new. Now, it's not a confession, it's not an admission, and it's not an accounting of sins. Baptism does not have that. You are not to stand there and, and to account for your sin. John doesn't have them do it. He has them come on out, and all they need to do is declare belief. That's it. Not, well, I did this, and I did this. There's no confession of sins. It is just, I'm leaving that. However involved I was, you're not admitting to either being involved or not being involved. All you're saying is, I'm leaving the works of the flesh. I'm moving on to the works of the kingdom. And that's where we're going. That's why Jesus could come and, and be baptized because he's not declaring that I have done these things. He's declaring, I am leaving. I am not going to be participating in the works of the flesh. Well, he hasn't done it so far. <laughs> But I'm not going to be participating in the works of the flesh. I am going to be a participant in the works of the kingdom. Verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now when we see this, most of us will probably think of it, at least it's real easy to think of it this way. Well, John knows Jesus because they're kind of, kind of blood here. He knows Jesus. And so he knows what's been going on. However, think about this. John, after he you know, grew up and got out of his family, where did he go? He stayed in the wilderness. He didn't come into the city. He's cut off from everybody. He stays in the wilderness and people come out to see him. So how much contact does he have with Jesus? Jesus is in the city. He's over there with his, with his uh, parents. and you know They're very opposite. John's not drinking. Jesus is drinking. John's out in the wilderness. Jesus is in the cities. He's not having any contact with him. So our assumption could be that, well, he knows Jesus. And so when he sees Jesus come on the scene, he just says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The Son of God. So what John is saying is this. I didn't know who Messiah was. Which would kind of be a problem for him being a witness. Because you can't be a witness to someone you don't know. But he said the person who sent me, which is God, the one who sent me to, be, to baptize, and apparently God said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take people, you're going to take them to some water, and you're going to dip, dip them underneath the water. And you're going to bring them up. And he probably told them all the ins and outs and whys and so forth. And he said this to them. He says, there's going to come to you one. Then when you dip them under the water, the Holy Spirit is going to come down upon him like a dove. But it's not just going to come down upon him. It's going to stay upon him. And you are going to see into the spirit realm, the spirit of God come down upon him and remain. 
And John said, John saw Jesus coming and apparently didn't know who he was. But when he put him under the water and then brought him back out, he knew who he was. Oh, this is the one. This is the one. This is the Christ. This is Messiah. Now he's going about being a witness of what? The Spirit of God coming down upon him. And that God said to him, this is going to be the one. The one on whom you see the Spirit of God descend like a dove and remain. So John is out there baptizing. The whole time he's baptizing, he's saying, one of these guys, one of these ones that I'm putting down here, one of them is going to be the guy. And so Jesus is getting ready to go into ministry and the Spirit of God comes upon him and says, you need to go out there and be baptized. And so Jesus is just obedient. He says, okay, I need to go out and be baptized. And so he goes out and be baptized. And then upon being baptized, we have it from, from John. He said, he went around, he's, this is a witness he's saying, folks, listen, when I was commissioned to go out and do baptism, I was told this. And he would tell him what he was told. And then I saw this happen. You see the guy right there? That's the one. Now he's being a witness. He's being a witness of what he saw. So when he's told to be a witness, this is how he's being called to be a witness. Because ahead of time, he was told, this is what you will see. And after you see it, you need to go out there and declare it. Now, isn't it interesting that John was supposed to declare who Jesus was? Right there. That's the guy. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was supposed to do that. When his disciples came to the realization that Jesus was the Christ, what did Jesus say to them? Don't tell this to anyone. Don't tell this to anyone. So why does Jesus tell his disciples not to say anything, but it's okay for John the Baptist to say something? Doesn't that seem kind of funny to you? Why is it that God the Father tells John, be a witness? You're going to see the Spirit of God come down. Now you be a witness about it. He's supposed to be a witness. But when this is revealed to Peter, James, John, and all the rest of the twelve, Jesus says, okay, don't tell anybody. And he began to teach them, just them, about his death and resurrection. But no one else. Just them. So how is it? Possibly, and about the only explanation I can come up for this, the only one I can think of, is that John was told this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The disciples were told this towards the end of his ministry. That at the beginning of the ministry it was okay. But the end of the ministry it was not. Now think about it this way. When Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to them, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Well, that's interesting. Because I thought John the Baptist was going around revealing this to people. Why does Jesus say that? Where do we leave off at? 34? 
33, and I did not know him, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. No doubt what he's saying, is there? Oh, before we go on, I wanted to read this for you in Williams. I'm going to go back to verse 26. If you want to follow along in the, the King James, I'm assuming that you didn't bring your Williams with you. Verse 26, John answered them, I am baptizing only in water. There is standing among you one with whom you are not acquainted. He is to become my successor because he has been put before me and I am not fit to untie his shoestrings. This took place at Bethany on the farther side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, he is the Lamb of God who is to take away this whole sin. This is the one about whom I said, After me there is coming a man who has already been put before me because he existed before me. I did not know him myself, but I came baptizing in water that he might be made known to Israel. Now he's not talking about he was being born before him because John was born first. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit coming down from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I did not know him myself, but the very one who sent me to baptize in water said to me, The one on whom you see the Spirit coming down and remaining is the one who is to baptize in the Holy Spirit. I did see it, and my testimony is that he is the Son of God. So even though he sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Look, he is the Lamb of God who is to take away the sin of the world. That apparently was not before his baptism. His baptism happened before that. And then Jesus came on another occasion and he said, Behold. He was okay to do this. It was okay for him to do it. Behold. Or look, as it is in the Williams. He is the Lamb of God who is to take away the sin of the world. Let's go on to... um, To the rest of our verse here, verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speaking and they followed Jesus. So this is the day after that. that He sees somebody. So apparently he kept on doing this. Whenever he would see Jesus, he would tell the people about, Behold, the Lamb of God. Look. The Lamb of God right there who takes away the sin of the world. So after it became revealed to John who this was, he then went on and he became the witness and gave testimony of what he saw. I saw the Spirit of God come down upon him and the one who sent me to be, to be a baptizer in water. That one told me what to look for. I saw it and this is the guy. So he kept going around saying, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. And two of his disciples decided to follow Jesus. So the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two of his disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said, 
to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour, somewhere around four o'clock. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Is there any doubt that John, in John's mind, what, I'm sorry, in Andrew's mind, what John is saying? We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So here we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's come before John. John recognizes him as the, the one. He declares, this is the this is Messiah. This is the one. And everywhere he goes, he declares, this is Messiah. He's got his own disciples there. That's him. That's the one that I was called to, uh, to point out. And two of them left John and followed him. We, we know Andrew is one. I can't seem to find anything on the other one. I don't know who the other one is. What happened to him? Did he just not become one of the twelve and just follow Jesus? Uh, what happened to him? We, do, we don't know. But what we do know is that Andrew continued to follow Jesus. Andrew heard the testimony of John. Obviously, he believed the testimony of John because he was one of his disciples. If none of the other twelve were with John, Andrew was. And whenever the question would come up, who is this guy? Andrew could say, well, John said this was Messiah. John said he saw the Spirit of God descend upon him. Would he not be telling him this? He saw it. He heard it firsthand. What was going on? He goes over to Peter, his brother. Peter, we found the Messiah. And then Peter begins to follow him on the basis that this is the Messiah. Kind of shed some light on some of the initial things of Peter and Jesus and the boat and the net and such things like that. Because this is how Peter came to Jesus with the testimony of his brother that he was the Messiah. But Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And yet we have the testimony of John, testimony of Andrew, and any other disciples of John that may have been in their midst. So why is it that they had to have this revealed? I'll tell you what, folks, there's some truth that we have come to because other people have taught it, because other people have, have declared it. But oh, it's different when it becomes revealed to us. And we just don't know it because people have said it and because we believe their words. We know it because down on the inside... I've got the revelation. And Jesus was waiting for them to get to a place where they didn't just hear that he was the Messiah, but they knew that he was the Messiah. And when they got to that place that he knew he was the Messiah, now we can alter some things and now we can change. Folks, there's some teachings that we have and we have the knowledge of faith. We have the knowledge of mercy. We have the knowledge of forgiveness, but we don't have the revelation of it yet. And we're walking on that revelation. We're walking on that knowledge and thinking, I have the knowledge that this is Messiah. But Jesus apparently is saying, I can't teach you what I need to teach you with just the knowledge that I'm the Messiah. You have to have the revelation that I am the Messiah. 
And Jesus can tell the difference between when we have the knowledge of faith, the knowledge of grace, the knowledge of whatever it is that we know in the Word. He knows the difference between the knowledge and the revelation. The knowledge and the revelation. I've heard it put at, at times like this. If you have the knowledge of faith and you hear somebody teach on faith, oh, I've heard that. When you have the revelation of faith and you hear somebody teach on faith, oh, they're going to teach on faith. It's different. Because when you have the revelation of something, you know how much you don't know and how much you can still receive. When you have the knowledge, you think you got it. They had the knowledge that Jesus was the Christ. They didn't have the revelation yet. Once they had the revelation, they found out how much they still had to learn and were eager to learn. And Jesus was now prepared and able to teach them. But they had to get past that spot. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father, he's not saying you never heard it from flesh and blood. They heard it from flesh and blood. We just went through the scriptures where they heard this from flesh and blood. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, what you are speaking out of right now is not what you have heard from flesh and blood. You are speaking out of a revelation that came to you from my Father in heaven. Folks, there is a difference in us when we speak out a revelation that comes from God the Father through the Holy Spirit and we speak out of what we have heard from men. And it is very different. And it's a place we need to to certainly get to. One more verse of scripture we want to take a look at. It's First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twenty nine. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? There are some places that actually have people that are alive on the face of this earth be baptized. For those who are dead. Have you ever heard anything like that? <laughs> yes, sir. Over here. What was that? You've heard of that. Yep, there are some places that will teach that, that you are baptized on behalf of those who are dead. And they take it from this verse of Scripture right here. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? It sounds like what Paul is saying is, if there's no resurrection for the dead... Why are people being baptized for those that are already dead? Doesn't it sound like it's that way? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is written on the basis of defending resurrection from the dead. That's why the, the chapter is written. And so what he is actually teaching them this is in baptism, baptism is symbol, symbolization of the death of the old and the bringing alive of the new, just like the bird. The one bird, dead. The other bird, alive and free and, and flying away. We have a death and we have a resurrection. He says, if there is no resurrection, why are we being baptized? Because being baptized shows that we are dead. And if there is no resurrection, then why in the world are we bringing them up out of the water? <laughs> what are we symbolizing here? If there is no resurrection, then baptism basically has no meaning, is what he's teaching them right here. Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense than the way that we've come out with it? 
Baptism is a symbolization of a death and resurrection because there is a resurrection. And Paul says there is a resurrection. That's why we have baptism. If we didn't have a resurrection, why in the world would we be baptizing people? We cannot be baptized for the dead. We cannot pray for the dead. The dead are dead. It's what they did in this life that determines what happens in the next life. We can't change or alter that in any way. We only change and alter what we have and where we're going. Let's look at this, these, these sections of Scripture. We've got to make sure we get ourselves out of the place of just hearing the truth and to the place of having revealed truth because there's a whole different thing when we get to a place of revealed truth. And if we only stay in the place of hearing the truth, we're going to be like the disciples who for all those years heard that Jesus was the Messiah. Her testimony that Jesus was the Messiah. But it wasn't revealed to them that Jesus was the Messiah. God can only deal with us when the things that we have, that we walk in, that's revelation. What are you still walking in that is just head knowledge? And what are you walking in that has become revelation? That's what will set us apart. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it is life. There are some truths, Father, that we have come to where we're satisfied with the knowledge of the truth. We haven't come to the place of revelation. Our hunger for that topic is far greater once we walk in the revelation. But if we have that understanding, well, I know what that's about. Then we're only walking in head knowledge and not the revelation knowledge that you want us to walk in. So I pray, Father, that for every, every teaching, every belief that we have, if we only have head knowledge of it, if we only have the testimony of men, help us to see that we need more and to pursue that revelation that comes. The disciples at some point had to pursue that revelation and it came to them, revealed down on the inside what was going on. Thank you, Father, that you bring us to that place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.